1: Today we are joined by Jared Bultima, who is a machine learning engineer and data scientist at DataRobot. So Jared, why don't you start off by just giving us as long an introduction to yourself as you want to. I know that you were formerly in bioinformatics, I think, and now you're in data science. You have a PhD. So there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. Why don't you tell us how you ended up where you are today?
2: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. you know, I have an interesting journey because even within the life sciences, my focus wasn't really on kind of data driven projects. So my background is in biochemistry and really kind of cellular machinery. So, you know, how do you accomplish certain things within a cell and what are the kind of molecular players that work together to build sort of, you know, engines and things like that. Um, And then I went on from that and did a postdoc in immunology on therapeutic vaccine development. And then after that was actually a professor of biochemistry where I read, uh, excuse me, I led a research group doing vaccine development. So lots of bioengineering, cell culture, cell manipulation, genetic engineering, things like that. Um, But it was really interesting because the timeline for an individual execution of an experiment was often weeks, right? So if I wanted to do one experiment, within cells that took days to grow the cells, you know, seven to 10 days for the treatment period of my experiment, and then some readout time. And so it would be kind of weeks before I found out an answer. Um, And so as I was kind of getting fatigued of the academic life and what I wanted to do, kind of transitioning away from being a professor and doing something else, um, I found it wasn't really to my liking. I started getting more interested in um, AI uh, analytics, things like that. Um, Part of the motivation for that was my spouse, who we actually have the same graduate degree, but we're on polar opposite ends of things. And she was doing kind of data science on living systems in her PhD. She had made a transition into data science a little bit before me. And I kind of peeked over her shoulder as she was doing with it, excuse me, as she was kind of doing data science, working in the new profession. And I found that it solved my biggest frustration with traditional science, which was that long experiment time where it's weeks to know the answer if something worked. And there's lots of, you know, places along the path for that to go wrong. And within data science, you just compress that time frame exponentially where it's, you know, hours to maybe days to have the answer to an experiment. And so kind of seeing that pace and then kind of dipping some toes into the fundamental, you know, skills and techniques you need to do data science, decided to just uh, take the plunge, dive all the way in, um, and then, worked as a consultant, uh went through a boot camp program, and then uh was hired at Data Robot as a data scientist.
1: Nice Wh- which boot camp program did you go through?
2: I went through the galvanized data science immersive.
1: Oh that's right. Uh, it yeah, was that's It was in person
2: at the time and is now a uh remote only thing, as are almost all things in the times of COVID.
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh I went through the same program. What was your capstone project, if you don't mind me asking?
2: Yeah, so I actually did um, sales demand forecasting, so I partnered with a company, got some of their retail sales data, and then did all three of my projects on that forecasting. And that really kind of kicked off an interest and obsession with uh, forecasting and how to do it better, because, you know, as generally happens when you dive into a new type of project, you're really unsatisfied with the results. And then kind of, you know, part of the discovery is what could I have done better, and part of the discovery is what are the tools that you use to do this well. Um, and so it's kind of kicked up, off this fun, continual learning process.
0: So you could actually then um, uh, go in and, and analyze retail stores today and uh, determine uh, kind of their likelihood of failure uh, over the coming months?
2: Yeah. You know, you, you have lots of kind of various granularity that you can get inside into stores. I'd say at the most granular level is predicting how much sales or demand for sales are you gonna have for every item at every store across like large multinational retailers? So kind of forecasting hundreds of thousands of items. Um, and that's really like at the most granular level. And then you can think about that aggregating up to pretty much any level you want, all the way out to you know, kind of financial decisions. Is this a wise investment to put money you know here or there?
0: Uh, that's that's real interesting. I, I wrote a paper a while back on this concept of when do we reach peak e-commerce. Um, and it has to do with the idea that uh, we we can never reach a hundred percent e-commerce because that means we would have no coffee shops, we'd have no restaurants to go to, um, and so we'll never go that far. And so, when do we reach peak e-commerce? Because we're we're only slightly above ten percent at the moment. And then, how long does it take to reach peak e-commerce? And so, it it, it becomes kind of a philosophical endpoint somewhere along the way there. Does, does 10% yeah? So
1: what? Does 10% e commerce mean that what we're going to be What did 10%? you come up with as a rough estimate?
0: Uh, m- what my uh, basic guesstimate for this was around 10 years from now, and that we would probably peak out at around 20%. Um, we, we still have a need to get out and be around other people, and I don't think that goes away. And uh, uh, so, buying things, um, it, it, we, we no longer are entertained by just looking at products on a store shelf. Um, and so, we want something that's much more interesting, much more engaging, and have that experience that goes along with it. Um, and, and so, uh, I, I think we have a whole new breed of storefront that comes out of the woodwork, and we're already starting to see a lot more things, <coughs> you know, like the the trampoline parks for kids and uh, the immersion tanks, uh, uh, full sensory immersion tanks and yoga studios and karate studios and things like that that um, are are less about coming home with bags full of stuff and more about gaining an experience. And so I think we we continue to go down that path making that transition. Um,
2: You know, it's interesting if you reflect on strip malls and kind of the turnover of what's the composition of mini strip malls. They go from this kind of small scale, you know, atypical retail and they turn over into, as you're describing, kind of activity based retail. Right? And you see like gyms popping up and those trampoline parks that are replacing big box stores. And uh, I think you're right. It's kind of what can you get rid of in terms of uninteresting aspects of your purchasing? And then it's the things that are fun to buy, and it's the experience, or the things that only have value seen in person. Um, yeah, I think the death—the death of uh, small retail and the growth of e-commerce is probably the, you know, shift toward larger and larger players. Though, I think that's one, you know, probably downside of that transition.
0: Well, yeah, there there is that. Um, as much as we tried to have stuff delivered during the COVID crisis, we were um, we we found that if we have uh, fruits and vegetables delivered, they seem to pick the stuff out in the bottom of the barrel to give us. Um, so it's less than appealing. So we're, we still really like to go to the store to pick out certain items. Uh, it's the same with um, uh, clothing stores. You want to really feel the fabric. And and uh, shoe stores say you really want to feel how it feels on your foot, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. that's So some of those are interesting because A few years ago, I would have completely agreed with you on the last point, but now I think the ease of returns, at least for me, has offset part of that. So, you know, fresh fruits, yeah, absolutely, I'd like to pick my own. But shoes and other things, often I'll buy, you know, one or multiple pairs and then return the ones I don't like. And so, you know, there's a minor hassle in swinging by the post office to drop off the package, but it kind of offsets the shoe shopping in store. So I think of the pairs of shoes I bought, probably 80% of the most recent ones I purchased online.
1: Yeah, so I think the deeper question is what exactly is it that you're purchasing when you spend money at at an establishment? And Thomas is right that feeling the fabric is an important part of it, but I I think that is offset by the ease of returns today. The things that I don't think will go away are probably going to a concert or going to a coffee shop. I, I think those have a certain amount of staying power because You can currently stream the ambient noise of a coffee shop over YouTube, but it's just not the same. It doesn't smell the same. It's it's, it's not the same as seeing the people around. Plus, there's just this coffee shop vibe that for some people helps them work or have thoughts they otherwise wouldn't be able to have. So I think the things that will continue to be around are the things that aren't really about the money or the fabric, or it's it's the process of doing it that is its own reward.
0: So in in your way of thinking, is there a way of modeling what works and what doesn't? And uh, in that I think that's the question that a lot of people have in their minds. Is there a smarter way to go about analyzing what business models are going to work in the future?
2: Oh, what an interesting question. Yeah. You know, I think with all things, it comes down to data and availability of the kind of types of data you'd need. Um, I think, you know, that's, I think, one of the lessons I have learned getting deeper and deeper into data science and, Doing kind of working on more diverse use cases is that, you know, ultimately your limitation is going to be in the data. And for a problem like that, you know, you'd need to harvest lots of data from small retail and the descriptions of that. So one can kind of imagine piecing, piecing together a, you know, substantial data set that includes things, you know, as kind of granular and boring as their kind of financial status and transactions, but then, you know, whatever info you could scrape on the business type and traffic from Yelp or Square, Foursquare or anything like that.
1: Um, do you do topic modeling or sentiment analysis on reports that customers provide as to the experience or the reason they actually got into it? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I
2: think that's, you know, that's kind of the human version of uh, online reviews.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess it's the same thing. You, yeah, you, you could just scrape it as well. Um, for Yelp, those the, the, data sets exist for that kind of thing already. Um,
0: so, so let me give you a scenario here and and uh, see if you could describe how you would um, model some sort of an analysis for this. Um, th- so, this would be a new feature on a smartphone, and it's a feature that I uh, call the the point and call and the point and text feature. That um, uh, th- there's been so many times when I driven by a store and i just want to be able to point my phone at the store and to be able to call it just hit a button and call it and then find out if they carry this particular product Um, or i'm driving down the road and i um, uh, the, the car next to me is irritating me, I want to send them a text to tell them how much they're irritating me. Uh, so this idea of having a point and, and call or a point and text feature on a phone, um, there's there's all kinds, kinds of ways that this can go wrong. I mean, if you go to a party and you send a text to a good looking girl or something, you... Uh, Uh, you probably get slapped or something along the way. So, I mean, how do you test out uh, these type of features in advance uh, to actually building it? Uh, uh, I mean, is there a way to model the acceptability of something like that?
2: Uh, You know, it kind of depends, right? So is there previous data on a similar thing that you can use for extrapolation? And so there's kind of, that's always the challenge of kind of a cold start problem, right? It's a new feature. It's a new product and there's no data on it. How much can you borrow from existing data on similar things and then apply kind of put your thumb on the scale for some assumptions that you're going to bake in and get performance out? So it's definitely doable, but it's kind of, from my perspective, that ends up becoming a hybrid of machine learning and more traditional statistical modeling where, right, one, some component of that problem, you're going to model with, you know, classical machine learning algorithms for kind of whatever type of use case. So, you know, when it's forecasting the sales, there's a bunch of approaches you can take. uh, And we can definitely go down that avenue if you want. And then on what are the new features for a store? And what's this new thing? Are there things you can borrow from? Do you have to manufacture synthetic features or synthetic relationships and kind of define those mathematically? And What do you feed in as known parameters? What are you going to have as internally optimized parameters by kind of whatever loss function you're using? So you can take those hybrid approaches and then merge the two. And so, you know, use the mathematical rigor of machine learning where it's appropriate and then use human intuition as much as you can with whatever data is available and kind of merge the two in the middle.
0: Okay. Um, So there's still a lot of guesswork then.
2: Oh, well, yeah. so, yeah, you know, one, <laughs> one component is if it's net new, right? So if it's, you know, if the scenario, it depends how groundbreaking is that feature. What you described is a pretty novel feature that doesn't exist yet, right? But if it's, you know, kind of a minor extrapolation of an existing thing, um, you know, if it's quite close to it, you can kind of figure out how do you want to kind of encode this novelty and feed it into existing training data sets, see if it has some value but you know ultimately if there's nothing known about the thing that you're trying to predict and you can't find data that represents it then okay. you're left uh making up the equations yourself
0: yeah okay
1: yeah right one of the things that i've learned in the years since i've been a machine learning engineer and specifically since i graduated the galvanized program is that Machine learning, it's just math all the way down. There, there's nothing magic about it. And I think in the, the common imagination, it's, it's almost mythical the way these things work. But if you apply a linear regression to a data set, there's just an equation that's being solved for. They're just drawing a line of best fit by minimizing a cost function with gradient descent. Or the same for K and N, K means. These are just equations that you apply to a data set. And if you don't have good data, or if it's a completely novel thing, there's often just no answer machine learning can provide you.
0: Yeah, so I I was um, uh, speculating that this could be a feature that um, uh, can go off the deep end and uh, violate a lot of privacy and get a lot of people complaining about it, or it could be a very useful feature depending on kind of the uh, the framing of of how it's used and everything. Um, so any, anyway, I, uh, I I was thinking that it'd be helpful if there's some way to quantify or qualify uh, the ideas before we go too far down the road and try to develop them
2: yeah you know it's tricky right that's kind of like the boundary between ai ethics and human ethics and so you know i think the internet and the anonymity of the internet has shown that if you give people the power to interact with other people in an anonymous way it doesn't always go super well and so like the, the greater and greater degree that AI lets you penetrate with people or kind of interact with people like that in a closer to -to face-to-face way, I think kind of probably starts breeding some of the same challenges you have with, like, you wouldn't do this thing if you were right in front of the other person. But with enough of the veneer of kind of social media or the internet between you, you might do it. So, you know, how many steps back from actually saying that to the person do you have to have before uh, you kind of have that Boundaries between, you know, what is someone's individual ethics start changing? And then the flip side, once you also then have the permanence, uh, the kind of everyday interactions in real life that you have with online personas and, you know, posting something online, it never really disappears. So how much do you start baking that into everyday life? So kind of finding those two meeting in the middle and then what's the ethics and social norms that govern that kind of new boundary space between the, you know, true physical space and, uh, whatever digital interactive space exists.
0: Yeah. Great explanation there.
1: Thanks. Do you have any thoughts for how to concretize the mediated experiences we have over the internet? such that people take them more seriously, because you're absolutely right. I find myself often tempted to say things on Facebook that I would just never say to a flesh and blood person in front of me. And I think it's the distance and the fact that you don't have to look into a person's eyes and say this to them that makes it so much easier to do. And to date, I haven't really indulged that, but it's nevertheless something that's, that tempts me when I'm, when I'm interacting in these media. Do you, do you think there's any way to walk that back a little bit without losing the benefits we get from social media?
2: I don't know. You know, in one sense he's kind of. I think, and I even said this, but I think you know, back in the chat room days, when everyone was kind of username based. I think that there was this anonymity. But what something that's been interesting on a bunch of social media platforms is like the true name accounts, like Twitter checkmark or you know people using their real name on Facebook. That kind of removes that anonymity, and still, you know, it's like, okay, now you know who the person is. Their name. Are they a person that's in front of you that you interact with, and so you have any sort of empathy with, or are they just kind of, you know, indistinguishable to you from some avatar? Um, Man, I don't know. I think it's, I'm quite concerned about the impact that social media has on human kind of social interactions because of what we've seen in, you know, social media use in the past 10 years and kind of the power it has in all sorts of ways from kind of, teens and memes and organized effort of uh, rebellious teens to organized propaganda efforts, you know, more kind of like political and social isolation and extremism of ideology and echo chambers. I I hope there's ways to walk it back, but the ways that I keep thinking are going to put some reins on it don't end up slowing down the process. So I'm obviously not good at predicting what's going to be effective for social media and
0: kind of online ethics. Yeah. uh, A while back, a British psychologist by the name of Robin Dunbar came up with what people have referred to as the Dunbar number um, of how many people do we have strong relationships with in our life. And uh, uh, typically that number comes in around 150, although some people think it's higher than that or lower than that. But uh, these are the number of people that you um, you might go out and have a beer with, or you have dinner with, that you're closely interacting with uh, in lots of different ways. Now, since social media came out, uh, these strong relationships have been replaced to the, lar- to the uh, large part by, by weak relationships, and uh, in a lot of cases, even tangential relationships, like on Twitter, if you have uh, uh, 250,000 followers on Twitter, you don't have much of an intimate relationship with any one of them. Um, and, and so it has uh, blurred the lines of um, kind of our the way we uh, form form relationships with other people and um, and the the channels for communication uh, all of those have changed considerably over the past few years and um, yeah it <laughs> it raises in my mind it raises all kinds of questions uh, naturally about the ethics of everything and 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 how how damaging this is to our human um, kind of need to um, uh, to relate to other people but uh, but it may give us more capabilities on the other hand too and um, and so we're, we're much more aware of things happening in our families and uh, to people on the other side of the world than we ever were in the past. So I think there's pluses and minuses that kind of counterbalance each other. Um, I, I'm not sure there's a good way of modeling that yet in a way that is meaningful to tell us when we've, when we've gone off the deep end. Uh,
2: yeah. So I think there's an interesting uh, example and kind of Sample into humanity that has reached that deep end. And it's like, as you described, these people who have massive social media followers. So, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of, you know, Twitter um, connections, um, the big YouTubers, and people for whom, like, there's been a shift from individual interactions, or at least kind of just like extended individual interactions to numbers, right? Like, how many likes, how many views. How many retweets did this content, this thing I did produce? And, you know, I think that's kind of the extreme example where we can see they have the ability to get the data perspective on their both professional and social lives. And, uh, you know, they're kind of at the deep end. And so I think there's kind of notorious anxiety and depression among these kind of large influencers because of this kind of constant new pressure and, you know, kind of the ultimate keeping up, algorithmic driven, keeping up with the Joneses to remain popular. Um, And so I think that's kind of the closest we're seeing to that degree of merging of the two. And it's kind of fascinating and scary and, you know, also really interesting as a problem to solve. Like how much could you, you know, given current status, how much could you predict these human interactions and these aspects of kind of a human life to some degree, or kind of societal or group behavior.
0: So um, with, your, with your background, um, and there's, there's just lots of interesting um, emerging technology kind of coming out of the woodwork, what's, what's, your, what's your dream job? I mean, what, what gets you up in the morning? What would get you really excited about going to work?
2: Yeah, you know, I I really love solving problems, and so that you know, there's certain areas that I'm particularly fascinated by, at least have been in the past. But just that problem solving process is just so much fun, and then kind of finding a way to make that somewhat repeatable is just a kind of enjoyable thing for me. It gives some sort of dopamine really you know release and scratches some sort of itch. Um, but I think I love the opportunity to see science at human scale and doing it fast so that's one fun thing that's kind of blending ai data science machine learning on traditional scientific problems kind of as they meet humanity so you know certainly vaccines and just more and more data on vaccines and starting to be able to mix together kind of molecular data you might have but also all this kind of human data and blending all of those together and kind of seeing what are the new frontiers that you can do once you have all those disparate sources of data kind of what problems can you solve when you know all this stuff i think those types of problems are most interesting to me and especially when there's you know some sort of tangible uh excuse me a, a tangible benefit associated with solving a problem right so that's kind of the second aspect is i like to do things that like lead to something, Uh, discovery is fun, but not the most fun for me if it's just the sake of discovery.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I wanted to circle back around to some of the comments you made as you were introducing yourself and and in particular dig into this question of automated science and the interface of machine learning and, and science. So there are a couple different angles from which we could approach this. On the one hand, we could talk about how these massive data sets are enabling all sorts of insights that weren't possible in the past. We could also talk about how various teams of roboticists and artificial intelligence engineers are building true robot scientists, right? So you work for a company called DataRobot, but there was also that team in Wales that built Atom, which was uh, essentially just an automated experimental facility that downloaded all this information on yeast genetics and discovered these, these yeast genes that had never been discovered before and humans were basically not involved at all. Uh, there was another algorithm that took massive amounts of physics data and was able to re-deduce the, uh, uh, Newton's Three Laws of Motion from basically just that over the course of an afternoon. So, so there's really this fascinating field emerging of automated science and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that given that you are a data scientist and a trained scientist.
2: Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting because I think a lot of the automation came to science um, early on, in part because, you know, scientists will pay tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars for automated machinery. So I think kind of like manufacturing and science, you actually saw these Um, early steps in automation. And then, you know, they also had very repeatable processes. So I was kind of, when I was uh, being trained as a light, you know, as kind of a laboratory scientist, you know, my undergrad and my PhD, it was just on the cusp of automation becoming relatively normalized. And so rather than, you know, moving fluids between two tubes with, you know, a pipette yourself and kind of being a human pipetting robot going back and forth and mixing things, you started seeing robotics to do that. And that ended up being a huge change in how you could do kind of that scale of science and a lot of that type of science because you can now, you know, automate things to do hundreds of, you know, various pieces of an experiment kind of in one run. And that just isn't feasible with a person doing the work. And that's true across all sorts of places. So you had that kind of physical automation and then as you're discussing, even kind of on the genetic side, starting to get automation of genetic insights and analysis, kind of there were early predictive tools and some of the scientific software. And certainly, you know, scientists are smart and generally connected to math departments. And so whenever they had data, they would be trying to find ways to, you know, find some useful publishable fact from it. Um, and so it's really interesting to kind of see that transition and see how powerful it was. And how there's still place to be a scientist around the automation and, like, what are the things you're automating? Um, and then seeing that transition within data science has been really interesting as well. And kind of seeing that it's actually lagged behind um, what kind of was happening in physical sciences was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, but that's been fun to see as well as kind of how much can you apply those same automation principles toward the things you do in data science and how much does that change kind of how your job is performed or to your previous comment before, like, you know, does it automate your job away? And kind of seeing what is the reality of that has been pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, a few years back, uh, the CEO of Foxconn, um, one of the largest companies in the world, um, the CEO said that he was going to replace 500,000 workers with uh, 500,000 robots, and as we've learned uh, along the way, that it's never a one-to-one replacement. Um, and, and so these are uh, fun things to make headlines in, uh, on blog posts and newspapers, that sort of thing. But the, the reality is, is uh, much messier than that. It's much more blurry. Um, so uh, kind of the, the state of automation today, um, I mean, is there a way of, of quantifying the ratio of human replacement um, with automation? Is, is, is that something that could actually get a number for that?
2: You know, I have seen some numbers. I definitely am not an expert in kind of that avenue. But there's, you know, as you say, a human component to automation. Certainly, there's some kind of uh, use cases for automation that are probably neutral to humans where it's kind of augmenting their capacity or doing something that a human wasn't really touching that doesn't impact kind of the human labor on it, but there are many, many kind of interaction points between what's capable of automation and what humans are doing. And ultimately on a lot of those, when you bring in automation, you're displacing humans. Um, so there's definitely some studies on that. And you know, I don't recall off the top of my head, I wanna say it was in the neighborhood of 40% was kind of the estimate. And it was interesting seeing the diversity of things that are automatable. Because, you know, some things are just really challenging. The more things you're asking an automated system to be able to do, the more difficult it's going to be to do it. So, you know, Tesla notoriously built this huge automated manufacturing line for one of their models. And then it was kind of plagued with problems. And they ended up spinning up a human uh, kind of human run automobile manufacturing line in the parking lot to kind of augment and replace this automated line that they weren't really able to get the kinks all worked out of. But, you know, you know that sometime down the road, that automated line is going to be working if they continue to kind of invest the money to get it there. And what's that swing going to be? Kind of how many tens or hundreds or thousands of workers do things like that displace? Um, And it's a really, you know, it varies across use cases, but there is that harsh reality that's easy to not think about. It's easy to just think about here's the data, here's the problem to solve and kind of deep dehumanize what the problem is actually working on.
0: I think it's, it's hilarious. Virtually every construction site I go through along the highway, there's always a guy holding the slow sign. And I always find that to be um, the most obvious example of something that could get automated out of existence. But it, I think somehow it's written into contracts that you have to have a guy holding a slow sign at every highway construction project. And he always has to do the hand motion to tell you to slow down as you drive yeah. past him because you're never going <laughs> slow enough. Yeah.
1: And and I think there are some interesting observations to to be made about exactly what will end up being automatable in the near future. And it's often not the things people think that it will be. And and the, the people who think that their jobs are safe are often the ones that are going to either be outsourced to a different country or outsourced to an algorithm in relatively short order. And it, it, this harkens to a sort of deeper mystery within the field of artificial intelligence, and in 1953 when they had the Dartmouth Artificial Intelligence Conference, where the term AI was was coined, it was estimated that a dozen scientists working for half a year would be able to build an ai system that could do everything a human could do and 70 something years later we're we're not even close to that and and part of the wrinkle came from the fact that the things we thought would be easy to solve like doing calculus or string theory wound up being reducible to figuring out a mathematical way of expressing that and feeding it to a computer. And you've got all sorts of automated theorem provers. The things that wound up being very difficult were the things that we take for granted. So navigating an obstacle course or effectively working a hammer. And my hypothesis is that this is driven by the fact that human introspection is very shallow. And we have a lot of introspective access to what goes on when we do calculus because that's something that we have to learn deliberately. But the process of walking up the stairs or catching a ball or juggling this is not something that we have introspective access to. Most of those skills came from when we were you know, younger and, and we don't know anything about how the brain goes about coordinating muscular contractions to catch a ball. That's just not something we can introspect directly. And so it wound up being very difficult to build algorithms to do those things. And so ironically, many of the jobs that I think will be safe for a long time are the people who are building your deck, are installing the, the roundabout that you were telling us about before we started recording, and doing similar sorts of blue collar jobs. I think they're going to be safe for a while.
2: Yeah, you know, I, you're absolutely right. So there's some things that, you know, they're just there's such a variety of individual, nimble, challenging things to do and so many small decisions that we are terrible at introspecting on. And we're also overly confident about everything we're doing. I think that's kind of the human trait in general is to be overly confident about how easy something will be. At least that's kind of been a, a takeaway message for many things in my life is, oh, that, that won't be too bad, only to find it, not go that way. Um, and, and then the other aspect is, what's the cost to develop that thing? Because that's something that, you know, I kind of, from all ends of the spectrum, I can certainly speak to the AI side, but I you know can only imagine on the complexity of kind of actual physical robotics. You know, a lot of these things end up being more challenging than you would think to get to kind of a finished point. And so it's always this question of, well, do you want, human level performance do you want superhuman performance and you know where kind of the algorithm of the machine is going to do better than a human and how much kind of marginal value do you want to squeeze out you know all of that last performance versus kind of what you're going to get relatively quickly you know how much juice do you need from that squeeze and uh you know i think that's certainly right now at least it's still more difficult than we would expect but you know who knows? As we apply more automated approaches, automated approaches, and especially kind of evolutionary approaches that you hinted at before, of kind of solving things in a way that we don't have to define, um, you know, it's interesting. But ultimately, it comes down to time and training data, right? We're like a, a biological neural net that's had you know twenty to fifty years to train on you know a constant stream of data, and so. You have to find, you know, depending on what you want to train, you have to find a way to kind of fire hose that data if you want it to train fast and be effective.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm always suspect of um, these uh, exponential growth curves um, that don't account for um, the the kind of the big variables. as, as an example, uh, Dennis Gabor uh, is the guy that uh, came up with holography back in the late 1940s. And uh, he invented the, the concept of holography, and he worked out a lot of the, uh, the math and the details surrounding it. And it's, it's this idea of getting to a three-dimensional display. I mean, how do we get to a point where we can actually display something three-dimensionally? I mean, we all know what it looks like to see something, uh, a screen... Uh, above our computer, but if we throw the screen away and display things three dimensionally, um, we're really bad at at understanding what that's going to look like. We don't. We we've been raised with two dimensional books and two dimensional whiteboards and blackboards and even the screens in our computers are two dimensional. So it's even though we live in a three dimensional world, it's very hard for us to imagine what it would look like to surf the internet three dimensionally, or if you have three dimensional charts and graphs, what does that third dimension represent? And so this this idea of of holography, uh, a three dimensional display, uh, we've we've projected out that this is going to happen by a certain date many times over the years, and it's uh, we we kind of get there and we kind of improve it a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, but we've we've underestimated the size of the challenges along the way, and so it's. Uh, um, so when we put together these, these these kind of these growth charts that uh, exponentially this is going to happen, we, we miss out on some of the, the really difficult problems that we have to cross along the way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, curves that look exponential until they start flattening off, right? So if you're early on in kind of an exponential curve, you don't know if it's going to end up being something sigmoidal or you know what's going to happen, all you've seen is kind of the ramp-up And it does definitely set these kind of false expectations. uh, And especially if we don't learn from other things, right? We're, as humans, we're pretty bad at, you know, seeing like, huh, there's lots of these things that go up and then they pop, right? It's like bubbles bursting or all sorts of phenomenon where we don't really think about the negative consequences and we don't learn from the other situations and kind of over optimism about, you know, it'll never, it'll never go down. Um, And yeah. That's a fascinating topic.
1: I, I think that makes sense evolutionarily as well. So in the EEA, the Environment of Evolutionary Adaptability, there were very few exponential processes. I mean, almost everything is linear. And so you can forecast almost everything in your environment by just adding one to it in perpetuity and just trying to imagine what that would be like. Today, that's much less the case. And I think that we are up against some of the limits of, of human cognition in terms of trying to solve these problems and, and trying to look ahead to the future. And to stay with this this idea of automation, so you work at, at DataRobot, which is an ML ops company and an auto ML company. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about ML operations and what that means relative to a person like myself who's just a machine learning engineer, how's that different? and, and what differentiates data robot?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I think the whole idea is um, thinking holistically about what is the path between data and getting some sort of value from the data. Right. And so that's kind of the ultimate idea Is is kind of anyone who's not a data scientist, you know, their concern is, okay, how is this thing useful? So it's cool that we have all this information, but what can we, you know, do or, you know, how can we change using this information that we wouldn't otherwise uh, kind of know to do? And and that's where MLOps comes in. It's kind of that last step of how do you take uh, kind of the solution that you've created via data science and machine learning, how do you turn that into something that's actionable and something that continues to be actionable in the future? And it's not just kind of the equivalent of an ad hoc once and done uh, analysis that doesn't continue to function into the future and adapt as kind of the underlying situation that it's of trying to predict is changing. Um, so it's you know I was definitely uh, naive to a lot of the machine learning operations aspects until I was actually trying to kind of think about real business use cases and seeing the challenges that business have actually pushing those use cases into production. Um, and you know largely it's a different skill set, which is kind of a surprise to everyone who's not a data scientist who would do that. Um, People kind of find out that there's no obvious owner for the skills that are required to take a model out of development and into the situation where it's continuously providing value because it's integrated into some system and it has all sorts of kind of monitoring and alerts and ability to fix it so that it's not kind of like, you know, you build a car, it rolls off the manufacturing line and then uh, there's zero support for that car. There's no one who knows who's responsible for, you know, changing the oil or fixing a flat tire or anything like that. It's just the idea of like, Hey, I built a car and, um, the rest <laughs> is up to you.
1: So part of the way I think about this is ML ops is to machine learning as software engineering is to just writing code as a hobby. So you've got some really talented, really sophisticated people that build these hobby projects, but there's, really a pretty large gap between doing that, writing a few thousand lines to uh, do whatever, track your diet, and then producing an app that has a Docker container where it can deploy across platforms, where it can be audited, where security logs are being kept so that you can go back and find out why something failed, where you, you can open it up and say, this is what this line is doing, this is what this line is doing for compliance purposes, Machine learning, in, in many ways, I think, is, is stuck where software engineering was in the 90s, where there's nobody doing that. There's nobody doing continuous integration or continuous development, or if they are, it's, it's just sort of cobbled together. There's not a generalized sense of these other tasks being very important. I, mean, I think a lot of people who get into machine learning are just, they like computers and they like math, and this is kind of a way for them to do both those things. And there's really a lot more to it if you want your models to continuously provide value, be safe, be auditable, and, you know, run for a long time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if you kind of think about, you know, what's the real life impact of this? So, you know, the largest banks in the world are using machine learning to power a lot of their kind of internal decisions. And when you think that there's billions on the line, are they going to trust a system? Kind of what does it take for them to be Willing to bet millions or billions on the functioning of the system through all kind of the software aspects you described. And then, you know, that's the challenge, is it has all of that software complexity. And then there's still this ongoing data science problem of is my model performing well? Is it accurately reflecting what the you know recent future is? or kind of the underlying data that it assumes is going to remain constant to make all these predictions that we're automating and then you know, kind of have billions in liability on. So you have to track all of that as well. So it's all the software side to harden something from a janky kind of science project into a billion-dollar trusted kind of production-grade entity, and then also having the data science to make sure that, you know, this nice thing we built is going to continue to function accurately. And that, you know, there isn't some sort of a change where now all cars have three wheels and you built a four-wheeled car, right? Or some <laughs> kind of whatever scenario you can imagine. There's actually a great one when it comes to lending where there's just some point where the kind of they changed the number of loan grades and subgrades available. They just got rid of one loan grade. And so kind of a human knows this, right? If they check the news, they see, hey, this loan grade is no longer available. And so that's going to force all the people that were in that grade somewhere else. But if you don't have kind of kind of if you haven't built that new change in your models never learn that there's no longer that as a possible option and that, you know, the data has shifted as a result. And so it keeps making these assumptions based on the historic kind of scenario and your accuracy starts going kind of wild if it's this important feature. And so unless you're tracking kind of what does the distribution of every single one of my features look like and the average value and all sorts of things like that you risk having this drift in your data or large external factors that kind of break your billion dollar engine and then you know you might have substantial liability. So it's kind of how can you get all of that plus the kind of convenience so that when your stuff breaks at two AM in the night, you're not reliant on, you know, Jerry to go fix this thing. There's some way that this comes back online fast so that it's not, you know, however many millions of dollars are lost because of downtime. So it's kind of this area where like, you know, the science project of data science meets the business impact that you can have.
1: Right, it goes back to what I said earlier that machine learning, it's not magic, it's just math all the way down. And if if, if you don't tell it that there is, there is now no longer this, this credit class, it's not going to discover that. It's just going to keep churning out the exact same things and your accuracy will go wild, yeah. Uh,
0: uh, so this is a, um, maybe an odd question, but uh, how does uh, the the emerging field of quantum computing uh, change machine learning, and um, how does it uh, uh, change kind of the the way you think about things?
2: Oh man, that's a really good question. I definitely confess I'm not as like I, I kind of have the basic knowledge of quantum computing and the the types of problems you solve with quantum computing, and to certain kind of stronger in the quantum chemistry, quantum physics side than the potential machine learning applications, but my understanding is it's these kind of types of problems where it's extremely difficult to resolve the state of something, and you know ultimately it's math all the way down for machine learning. So it's this kind of binary, you know, it, it's it's thing A or it's thing B, and then you can build systems on top of that. But those are really bad at dealing with circumstances where you know you can't test through a bunch of variants. To see what it is, it's kind of simultaneously occupying this certain state. And you can kind of have this weird kind of probability bubbles up through quantum computing. But um, I think, you know, it, it's hard to know at this point. It might be something that's really revolutionary in the types of problems we can solve because, you know, that t- the ability to solve those certain types of problems might have really profound impacts on kind of human life and society and, you know, the advancement of science and technology, or it might end up being a relatively small kind of new tool in the toolkit. I honestly don't know where it sits right now. There's definitely all sorts of really amazing, fascinating kind of techniques within science that have unbelievable physics that kind of allow them to be possible. Um, And then it's not always the, the impact of them is not always the same as kind of the amazing, how cool it is you can do the thing.
1: Yeah, my, my own thought is, if anything, I'm far more of an amateur than either of you, but it, it will largely boil down to what are the sorts of problems where a quantum mechanical approach will prove useful. So I think if people don't know much about quantum computing, they're just going to assume that it's, it will break everything, everything will change. Well, not necessarily, because there are many problems for which a classical algorithm does as well or better and for far less cost. So if it turns out that personalized medicine becomes easier, material science becomes easier, or Simulating quantum systems becomes easier. That could be very impactful if it winds up being the case that it's just much harder to do Than we thought quantum computing might remain a sort of interesting relic for some time to come
0: Yeah, we have a we have a long ways to go on it still but um, We're we're having breakthroughs on a regular basis at the same time. So um, uh, Again, we don't know what the uh, what the insurmountable problem might be somewhere along the way, though. Um, so I, I want to ask you this, this question, which is an oddball question. And um, we, we had uh, a science, a special science fiction writer as our guest last night. And um, the, the, so this gets back to uh, kind of the origins of data. But the, the guy that invented the clock... Uh, how did he know what time it was? <laughs>
2: uh, that's a good question, right? I think uh, <laughs> solar, lunar, and celestial alignment, but you know. Yeah. That, but, it, it is sort of an... It is definitely kind of a...
0: It's, a, it's an oddball question. You know, but an
2: arbitrary, it's, arbitrary layering on a natural process, right? We could have called it something else. We could have measured it in different increments.
0: Right. Yeah. Y 12? Um, and why, tw- <laughs> why 12 twice a day? That, that's, that's a really interesting question. What we ought to do is, is do the,
1: the edge question, scenario, you know, where, um, I forget the guy's name, but he asked Steven Pinker and Sam Harris and all these people, the same question, like what's going to change everything. We should just do that with how do you tell what time it is when, when you're inventing the clock and then compile that into a book and sell that. This this is how a hundred top notch thinkers answered this question that they had no reason to expect would be asked of them. so, so, Jared, in the, uh, in the 10 or so minutes that we have left, I, I wanted to get your thoughts about the future of MLOps and, and machine learning generally. Where do you think the field's going to go? And for a person who wants to get into it or position themselves as an MLOps specialist, what would you recommend?
2: Yeah, so I'll kind of first say that MLOps is actually just one component of kind of what DataRobot does, because I think there's ultimately kind of three major aspects in this path from data to doing something useful with it. Uh, MLOps is the last of those, right? It's how do you make this? How do you ensure that this useful thing you built continues to be useful in the future? Um, And then kind of the front end is how do you get useful data that you can actually find patterns, insights in that, you know, provide some value to you? So kind of, I think there's places for automation in this whole lifetime of data. Right, kind of from its inception at point of being recorded and then some sort of aggregation. And then all the steps from, okay, now there's, here's this data, there's something useful in it. And then have automation that's going to basically figure out a way to, you know, model that usefulness. So, uh, and then kind of filling in that gap. So if the first third is data, the second third is how do you model this? How do you find the useful signal in this? And then the last third is how do you you know get value out of that and continue to get value out of that in the future. Um, so kind of as it relates to where I think the field is going is more and more toward automation. So it started in you know in the simple sense of you know hyperparameter grid search for a single model, right? If you're thinking you know linear regression, you have you know no real parameters that you're adjusting other than the number of kind of variables that you want to model, and then as you say. You have some sort of a loss function, some sort of an optimization function that finds the best coefficients, right? So that's kind of the simplest sense is, well, how many you know features should you use? And then you can start getting more and more complex of saying, okay, well, should you try different algorithmic approaches? Should you process your data in different ways? Should you do all these different manipulations? You know, How do you compare the performance of all of these things? How do you find something that's kind of following all these best principles and best practices? and kind of automating that whole process so that it takes the data scientist out of the role of being the human pipetting liquids between trays, mm-hmm. which is what I started doing in science, right? Where I want to do this experiment, that means I have a kind of, you know, 30 little wells in one tray, and I need to get a precise mixture of, you know, 10 different things into different combinations of those wells to, okay, I want to run an experiment. I want to understand this thing. I'm going to let the automation take care of a lot of what's under the hood make sure I have everything tweaked and it's doing what I want, and then take that useful thing and do something with it. So I think it's kind of shifting that role of the data scientist away from being kind of the equivalent to the lab monkey toward the one who's thinking about the experiments, thinking about how do I properly conduct this experiment? Okay, I wanna answer this thing that's not really obvious from the structure of the data. How can I set things up such that I can get an answer to that, or I can get predictions about that thing and then understanding what's happening and being able to see what's happening all along the way, so that you can trust what's there, and it's not just some algorithmic black box that you built, hooray! And then like you don't actually know what it does, and turns out that you know in the worst case it uses this thing that you're legally prohibited from using or right, this feature, <laughs> and you know has all these legal ramifications or. Ultimately, you know, you thought you were modeling this thing accurately, it turned out you weren't and you lost, you know, X number of dollars. So I think it's going more toward having the, the field is moving more toward having the technical skills you need to interact with kind of complex uh, systems automation and the knowledge of how they work, but much more of kind of a problem framing and kind of utilization deployment side. So building out the edges of that so you're not just focused on what are the parameters of your model what's your modeling approach how do you do your feature engineering certainly there's place for you to go in there and kind of add high value adjustment and kind of input but you don't have to do the basics it's tuning things and then thinking about where do you want to point this machine at and kind of see what useful things you get is that a Cohesive answer, coherent
1: answer. That's a fantastic answer to end the interview. Jared, thanks very much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thanks for for coming on. That's great.
1: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.